Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Sweeping up the electronic confetti from the Democratic National Convention, it's Election Shock Therapy Distributed Ops Edition. I'm Chris Moore. I'm Andy Ramson. And I'm Matt Kukum. And we're here at the end of the Democratic National Convention. Just We missed it, guys. We're actually already launching into the Republican National Convention. Oh, yeah. And we want to talk a little bit about what we've observed, what we thought, and uh, what these conventions may or may not mean for the presidential race as a whole. We have other politics podcasts uh, in this feed where we regularly talk about other things, but this one's going to be pretty focused on the U.S. presidential election. So... This last week, we experienced a really unusual Democratic National Convention. We're about to launch into an equally unusual Republican National Convention. We had the first night of it last night. And I wanted to pull together my colleagues and friends and figure out what history can and can't teach us about the importance of these conventions. So before we get to some of my questions, guys, overall reactions, impressions from the DNC. Joe Biden is nominated for his president. Kamala Harris uh, is vice president. And it all happened online. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. Good. I mean, it, it's, it's weird. So, I mean, we can talk about the history, um, but a lot of the history is, is not as relevant this year just because of the format, um, especially Absolutely. for the, for the DNC, um, which is wholly done online. Um, and so that's unprecedented, right? Um, mm-hmm. But you still get, you know, certain aspects of the convention that are, you know, the bread and butter stuff, right? And and my sort of overall takeaway of the DNC was that it was basically a gigantic telethon, mostly geared towards the middle of the country. That's kind of my my uh, uh-huh. my hot take. Uh-huh. So. Yeah, yeah, I think no. that's right. I mean, it felt like a TV show more than a convention, right? Where it's yeah. like, you know, we have a we have a host who's a a celebrity, not a politician. So you don't have a kind of, you know, Nancy Pelosi or somebody like that sharing the convention. It's these different like kind of TV personalities, right? <laughs> Including the last night, somebody who plays a vice president on TV, right? Um, and and then you're kind of going to these different people in different places, with these different backdrops. Um, and so it does feel more like that kind of show than a, a real convention um, and, it, and it made for a very different feel because usually their speeches are, you know, interrupted by lots and lots and lots of applause. And here it was just like, I'm giving a speech. And then at the end they had that super awkward zoom applause, which was a terrible idea. But anyway, <laughs> you didn't like the zoom applause. I hated the zoom applause. Why? Just use like, honestly, just because it felt for one thing, it didn't feel like an overwhelming applause. It felt like <laughs> slow clap that kind of didn't go anywhere. Um, <laughs> and you know, it just felt awkward. It felt like you're trying to achieve a real time result that just doesn't work virtually. I mean, if you're gonna do something virtually, you have to use virtual strengths. That isn't one of them. So honestly, you're going to do that. Just go the old, like kind of Andy Griffith route and use like canned laughter, canned applause. That's what I would have recommended. Now, first of all, I love that you suggest the idea of canned applause. But second, I love that you put out Andy Griffith as the way of getting canned applause. My children love Andy a, Griffith. A million other television shows since then who have also used canned laughter. <laughs> uh, 
can I make the, a point? Is the, the point is canned tracks go way back, right? So th this is an oh, invention yeah. that we have to come up with, right? We, this right. has been around. So, yeah. but. I would love it if they had if somebody really trolly within the Democratic National Com Committee had pulled different uh, spates of laughter or booing or clapping from other key American historical events, and yeah. then just as like a chiron. Every time there was a, a pause for applause, they would put up like this applause came from the, um, you know, <laughs> the march on Washington. This this applause yeah. came. From, this yeah. applause came from oh, the man. the nomination of, of FDR. You know, I like just like right. just kind of keeping that. Go I don't know. I got nothing. They should have hired you, yep. Chris. Yep. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's. Obviously, this was a, this was a really weird thing, and I think you're right. It was basically a four night infomercial. And yep. which culminated in something that was already a foregone conclusion, which is that right. um, Biden and Harris are running for the for the presidency and the vice presidency. But what a convention! This is my this is my dip towards history. So, Matt, what were conventions initially used for? Why do we have this artifact of American political <laughs> history? What what was the point of a convention? Well. <laughs> Conventions have evolved over time. So it used to be the case before we had, um, you know, primaries in which, you know, people in, you know, citizens across the states went out and chose, you know, who is going to be the nominee for their party for, for a variety of different offices, right, in the general election, not just the presidency. Uh, but these conventions held, you know, the local, the state and the national levels, um, you know, actually, that's where those people were chosen, right? Um, it these people were not chosen through this electoral process that we now know as the primaries. That's what the conventions were originally about. Um, but since the advent of the primaries during sort of the, the progressive era and beyond, um, the the purpose of conventions has has shifted, right? Um, and so they don't have, uh, you know, the, the formal choice is still made at the convention, um, but typically that's just basically seals um, the result of the primaries, right? And so conventions are are much more of a, you know, they're a giant party, right? Mm -hmm. um, people show up, they get, you know, they they meet other Democrats or other Republicans from across the country, they hobnob, they drink, they have a good time. Uh, there's some other important things that happen. Uh, they do um, put together sort of the party's official platform, except the Republicans aren't doing that this year. That's another discussion. Um, so they have an official sort of agenda and platform that they put out. Um, there will be other sorts of sort of like business type um, of functions as well as to the convention. But it's really a time for, for the party faithful to, to, to hang out and then for the party to try to sell itself and sell um, its candidates to the rest of the country, um, both to rally the base to get them out to vote um, but also to convince the moderates who happen to tune in, uh, convince them that they are the best choice um, in November. When was the last time a convention was really politically meaningful? Would that be 68? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what you mean by politically meaningful, I guess. Um, as a like as a decision making body, as a decision making body, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Seventy six with the Republicans was kind of um, like there was some question of whether you know Ford or Reagan was going to get it. Um, it was it was at least tight. Um, but so we're, yeah. so we're forty we're forty five years from this yeah. basically being a showcase. Yep. yep. 
Yep. It's become mostly, yeah. I mean, in that sense, like the whole, like it's an extended infomercial is not that different, right? The form, particular form it took is different. And there certainly is, it is the case that normally, you know, you get, you know, delegates come in actually working on the party platform. And some of that is actually getting hashed out and exactly how that will, you know, um, be, be laid out. Um, and that didn't happen as much this year with the Democrats and didn't happen at all with the Republicans. Right. But nonetheless, like in that sense, I mean, like this year is not that different, right? The convention is not a decision-making body and it really hasn't been. Yeah. Um, it could be if you had a situation where nobody got a majority of delegates in the primaries, but again, that hasn't happened in recent memory. Right. Yeah. So in an alternate world in which uh, the vote between Sanders and Biden was much, much, much closer as it looked like it might be at one point uh, in the 2016 nominating process. And then everyone got up in arms about super delegates. But if there's a world in which a, a, a party was basically going into the convention now without knowing who the nominee was, do you guys suspect that both parties would be comfortable allowing the convention to make that determination? No. No. Although they might not have a choice if they got to that juncture. Um, right. so, um, but you know, I don't, I don't know how much of a worry it is because it hasn't happened in a really, really long time. Um, right. you know, every, you know, it seems like every four years there's this, you know, all this hand wringing, you know, um, especially in the party that doesn't hold the white house, like, are we going to have right. a contested dimension? And mm -hmm. like, usually it's nowhere close. Um, right. usually, you know, and, and part of this is because, you know, our primary sort of, um, you know, calendar is so drawn out. Um, and you couple that with the fact that, you know, Americans love a winner, um, and you get this sort of bandwagon effect, right? And yep. people send yep. a sort of rally around person who is sort of ahead and that yep. allows them to sort of snowball this momentum. Right. Um, right. and that usually right. puts them well ahead of the second person. Yep. So. Right. Yep. I would say, I will say like, I think it could be an issue, especially for the democratic party, the way they currently do their primary, um, you know, process is more likely to be an issue for them. And the reason for that is that they um, pretty much insist across the board at awarding their delegates proportionately in states, which means that if you got two or three major candidates, um, it would be much harder to kind of get that the, the top candidate to kind of for that person to rack up all the delegates or a bunch of delegates um, if one or two other prominent candidates insisted on staying in the race, right? right. Um, you could see a situation where it divides. Whereas with the Republicans, eventually they go to winner takes all. And so that means the, the, the winner is getting all the delegates from a, a state, even if you know he or she only wins by a 5% or whatever. Right. So um, I think it, it's harder to imagine the Republicans actually going to that divided convention um, than Democrats, yeah. but it's possible. That makes a lot of sense. And thanks for explaining the difference because these two parties are private organizations and they do their selectorate process differently between the two parties. And so that's an important point to make note of here is that this is not constitutional. It's, it's entirely decided by the parties themselves. And the Democrats made changes from 2016 into 2020 in the nominating process, uh, largely truncating the role of the superdelegates that played such a role in handing the nomination of Hillary Clinton back in 2016. Yeah, um, and to be clear, um, those rules <laughs> change every four years <laughs> in response to what happened absolutely. previously. Right. Um, exactly. And previously, there were more superdelegates because of you know things that happened previously, right? So there's there's always these sorts of changes that happen. So let me wade into something that I'm ill-equipped to, to talk about, which is um, mass media communication and technology. I should have, I should have Peggy Kendall or uh, Scott Winter on here or something to talk about this. But 
the time period that you guys just mentioned, sort of the last 45 years, the dominant form of mass communication in the United States has been television. That's especially true up until the, the 2010s, I'd say. Um, and the convention plays very well in this modern era as a showcase for mass television, right? Whether it's the traditional networks or the rise of cable news. We've now moved into, coincidentally with COVID-19, uh, a world in which more and more people are consuming news media via the internet, via streaming. And so isn't it weird and isn't it potentially serendipitous that we have now a convention which essentially was a streaming event uh, and which was distributed because people, because Democrats decided, and I think perhaps in keeping with public health recommendations, that they not gather for an in-person convention. Plus, it also benefits the Democrats the more people are thinking about the coronavirus because uh, some blame accrues to the incumbent in this right. case. Yeah. Um, how yeah. much does the role of the technology itself shape the showcase? Yeah. So this is this is a great question, and um, so I think even though what we've seen, you know, we see this year, especially with the DNC um, and their sort of purely online, you know, like Zoom sort of method of broadcasting this, right? Um, I would say the the technology that we're relying on this year simply is an acceleration of trends that we've already seen. Let me explain why. So, so if you look at sort of the viewership, the television viewership of both conventions for, I don't know, the past number of decades, um, generally um, every four years, the television viewership goes down, which is weird, right? This is part of um, a, a broader sort of change in sort of the political media landscape. Um, that has to do with sort of the proliferation of media choices that people have. And so this is something I talked to my my American government class about. You know, it turns out that, you know, back whenever there was only, you know, the three major networks, a few television stations, if you wanted to watch primetime TV, you were always going to end up seeing um, the national sort of network news in the evenings, right? And if you wanted to watch primetime television uh, during the convention season, you were going to see the conventions, right? Um, but it turns out that, you know, with with you know cable offerings and the ability to you know completely you know tune out political television but still watch television right because you can watch all these entertainment channels you can watch right. sports any kind of sport now right yep. um you can tune out political tv very easily um and this has contributed to this sort of this decline and now because of the internet what we've seen is people can sort of tune in and see particularly especially today they can see particular parts of the convention, the speeches of the right. people that they're interested right. in. And so what we've seen this time is, so compared to 2016, um, the viewership, uh, the television viewership of the DNC has gone from 26 million to 18 million. Um, yep. But the online viewership has skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. Now you might say like, well, this is great. Like, well, it is and it isn't. Um, because what you're seeing is, because the people who are, are tuning in online, tuning in isn't even the right word anymore, right? The people who are, are deciding <laughs> to watch the DNC online, um, they're the sort of people who are A, gonna vote for Biden, and B, likely to vote in the first place, right? They're not the people that you have to convince. If you go online and you seek out the DNC, you are probably already supporting the Democratic nominee, right? Mm -hmm. um, and but what you do see is this decline in the television viewership. And it's 
the television viewers who are most most likely to be more the moderates, right? Because mm -hmm. the moderates aren't necessarily seeking out to watch these conventions. They have the television on, they're flipping between, you know, stations, you know, there's various things going on, like the NBA finals are going on, I think. Um, there's other things yeah. online, they flip or on TV, they flip through, they see it, and they're like, oh, I'll, I'll watch a little bit of convention. But but that number is down. Um, and so that's yeah. a that means that conventions are going to be less effective than they used to be at reaching the moderates and the people sort of in the middle of America who might be undecided. That's a really which long why, answer to your question. So. Yeah, which is why I think a lot of the pitch, I mean, part of the pitch is to those people, but but a lot of the pitch is also kind of rallying the faithful, right, behind your party's candidate. Um, and so I think for that, maybe the internet watching is more effective. I mean, so think about it this way, like, you know, if you think about the, sort of the African-American vote as an example, right, um, the Democratic Party not only needs to get the lion's share of it, which they will, right, they need to make sure it turns out that, you know, that population turns out um, in large numbers, right? And so their goal is something that looks more like 08 and 12 and less like 16, right? Where, you know, African-American vote was down enough that it really probably hurt them in some places, right? Um, and so when you think about particularly like Michelle Obama's speech, which was really well done, right? Um, it was very clearly targeted at that population, right? Um, of saying, you know, like, hey, listen, people who respect me, people who are likely to seek out my speech because they liked me as first lady for eight years, I have a really important message to you. And it's that you need to get out to the polls. This is a tremendously important election. It's vital that you do this. I know it's tough. I know it's a tough season. You still need to do it, right? And so for that kind of thing, I think maybe um, the kind of internet searching, you know, for particular speeches is maybe a little more effective. Um, but yeah, and I and agree. I'll, reaching those, those undecided voters, I don't know how much they're going to listen. And I'll just chime in here to point out that if that's what the goal is, then the Democrats actually did do, make some some success because yep. the initial reports overall is that Biden got maybe a two-point national bounce, which is pretty paltry, to be honest. Yep. After the convention, he went from about an eight-point lead over Donald Trump to about a 10-point lead over Donald Trump. We can talk statistically if he's maybe bumping up against his ceiling in terms of how much of a lead he can reasonably get. But one of the uh, more one of the larger effects of the convention is um, African American enthusiasm, not uh, not support, but enthusiasm for voting for Trump and Harris went up by over ten points following the convention. What's that? Biden and Harris, right? Yeah. Yeah, Biden Harris. So, or did I say Trump Harris? Yeah, that no, I a, love that. That idea. would be a terrible ticket. We should not yeah. have them run together. Um, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, African enthusiasm for uh, for <laughs> uh, for Biden and Harris went up uh, significantly. So, if the convention is about rallying the party faithful, right, then it, it seems to have done that well. I'm not convinced that anybody who is undecided is really well. I shouldn't say that. I have a friend who. And this is a real friend. This is not like one of those Tom Friedman. I have, a friend. Real um, I have an actual person. <laughs> who, this is not your imaginary friend. Okay. No, this is a real person who is a lifelong evangelical Republican who is basically offended by the character of Donald Trump. It's like, I just can't vote for that person for office. And right. so tuned into the Democratic convention to see basically if they could come to peace with voting for Biden and Harris. And uh, they're still making up their mind. But that's a... Uh, that kind of person is very rare, I would say, yep. in the American electorate. 
Yeah. There are I mean, fewer that, undecided voters um, this yeah. time than there were four years ago. Yeah. So. Yep. And the, and the Democratic convention was trying to reach those people, right? Even though they know that's a small group. I mean, you have people like John Kasich, particularly who is speaking directly to those people and saying, Hey, I'm one of you. I'm a conservative Republican. This is an extraordinary election. And here's why I think as a conservative Republican, that you should make the choice I'm making and vote for Joe Biden. Can I ask you specifically about John Kasich, uh, yeah. one of my fellow Ohioan, OH? Yeah. Is is this is this Kasich announcing he's done with electoral politics? Can he run for office after being a Republican who appeared at the Democratic National Convention? I think he's done. Yeah. Does he I mean, think he's done? <laughs> you know, my guess is like in some corner of his mind, he wonders if if there's a sufficient repudiation of Donald Trump, right. Um, in this election, does he have a chance to get back in? Maybe he does, but, um, but my guess is he also knows this is probably the end. I mean, like this is, this is the kind of move you make usually if you are, you know, just really kind of toward the end of your career and Kasich's not a young man. I mean, he's in his, you know, later sixties now. Um, so, you know, I, I think, yeah, I think functionally he's probably coming to peace with the fact that he's probably not going to get another shot at this. So this is this is something I'd like to come back to this fall, but I'd like to explore the thesis that whichever party loses this election, also potentially has a massive internal fracturing. Oh yeah. If, if the Democrat, if, if Biden loses this election, then there's going to be a sharp division between the really far left progressive wing of the Democratic Party right. versus what remains of the Clintonian third way uh, establishment Democratic Party, and likewise. Yeah. If the if if Trump is defeated, um, mm -hmm. and it would be the first time in several decades that a incumbent president hasn't been elected to a second term, then right. I think there will be a battle for the soul of the Republican Party. How how we deal with the legacy of Donald Trump? Do we run towards it or do we run yeah. far away from it? And Kasich could play a role in that actually. I think, especially right. if Trump and is defeated soundly. Yeah, yeah, and yep. it's going to depend on like how much Trump would lose by or how much Biden would lose by too, right? Right. right. So if you know right. Trump is resoundingly sort of um, you know, if he just loses in a landslide electoral college, you know, that means there's sort of a more, more space for a maneuver, right? And who, who knows yeah. wh where things are going to go, but there's a greater chance that sort of Trumpism will be repudi repudiated and the GOP will move away from populism to some extent. But if it's a narrow defeat, it's going to be just right. a bloodbath, probably. Oh, absolutely. Yep. So, yep. Yep. And I think it's interesting you're seeing like Republican Party elders sitting on the sidelines, right? Um, and kind of waiting to see what happens with this. I mean, so people like, you know, George and Jeb Bush, right? Or Mitt Romney, right? Who are largely just staying out of this. I mean, they're not, they're not pulling a case that can show up at the Democratic convention, but mm -hmm. neither are they endorsing Donald Trump either. Well, let's I think they hope to play some role. Let's, let's, let's look ahead here, since you mentioned this, to the Republican uh, National Convention, which is going on now. There's yep. a, one of the really big differences that jumped out to me is that in the Democratic National Convention, Joe Biden didn't speak until the last night. And when he did speak, it was fairly brief. It was about 26, 27 minutes, right. uh, and, which is, by the way, about half the time that Hillary Clinton spoke, and maybe about a third of the time that Bill Clinton speaks when he sent his nominations. Um, <laughs> But then, yeah, although although there's those would have been like Biden's would have been much longer with applause, right? So that's I think true. That's a really like, good point. The, it, it's a lot more efficient without the applause. That's a good point. Yeah. That said, in comparison, 
Donald Trump is speaking every night of the Republican National Convention. He is yep. he is keynote speaker each night, and about half of the key speakers <laughs> yeah. have the last name Trump. So um, yeah, Junior is speaking, Eric is speaking, Ivanka is speaking, Tiffany is speaking. I couldn't. Who's Tiffany? Oh. Uh, uh, there's a joke there, um, but <laughs> never mind. Never mind. <laughs> and uh, um, I don't believe I don't believe Barron is speaking, but just about every uh, Trump uh, progeny is speaking at the convention. Yeah, everyone who's on age. And there is a real dearth of other sort of stalwarts of the Republican Party. There are no Bushes speaking. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Mitt Rom yeah, you're right. Mitt Romney's not speaking. Ron uh, Rand Paul is not speaking. Ron Paul is not speaking. Good grief. Um, uh, Rand Paul is, I think. I think uh, Rand, Paul Rand is, Ryan, is Paul Ryan is not, which is weird. Yeah, Paul Ryan. Yeah, Paul Rand Ryan Paul is speaking. I don't know if I don't think it's prominent, but Paul yeah. Ryan, who was the speaker, first speaker under under um, President Trump is not speaking. Uh, yeah. Greg Abbott and Ron DeSantis, governors, you know, prominent Republican governors from Texas and Florida, they're not speaking, which is kind of weird. That, um, and that, yep. DeSantis has aligned himself pretty closely with Trump, so the fact yeah, that he's not really speaking is, is also telling. Uh, Mitch McConnell is not speaking. Very briefly. Very, very briefly. Okay, okay but he's not a, he's not a, he doesn't have a key not, spot. No, no, no. no yeah. Well, and to be honest, that's a good move. Mitch McConnell is not well, good in front of the camera. <laughs> No, but it really creates the impression that this is an election not really about uh, policy. It is, right. for both parties, a referendum on the personality and character of the president. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And, and it is interesting, like the, the who, you know, out there speaking, um, they had all these, you know, you know, former presidents highlighted, former first ladies. And the Republican convention, on the other hand, is like a lot of more minor figures and a lot of Trumps. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting that, um, you know, Trump is featured every night because, you know, the Democrats want to make this a referendum on Trump and Trump wants to make this a referendum on Trump, yep. it seems. Yep. Right. Um, and so the convention is they're trying to explain how great and amazing it is. Right. How about he's how he's a strong leader. They've been doing some things to try to show him as being more empathetic. Um, yep. So it's interesting they're trying to do that um, and put Trump forward as sort of the best part of the Republican Party, right? <laughs> Given that Trump is ex is very intensely disliked by a large chunk of the country, right? Um, so I, you know, I wonder if if it would be smarter for them to to give a little bit less prominence to Trump, you know, let him have, you know, take the stage, yep. you know, last night, but, but then to create more room for the Tim Scotts and the Nikki Haley's, right. Um, who are going to be yep. much better situated and capable yep. of pulling in some of those moderates. But I think the right. sort of the, the big contrast other than sort of the method of these two conventions is that whereas the DNC convention was probably geared more towards moderates than towards their base. They still had some ideological stuff for the base, right? But whereas the DNC was geared more towards middle America, the RNC is so far, at least night one, right, has been geared towards the Republican base. No, I think that's, I think. Yeah. And if anything, I would expect them to double down on that because they had some of their relatively more moderate speakers, people like Haley and Scott going night one, right? I mean, it does not get more more moderate in its tone in its tendencies in terms of the speaker list going forward. Right. I would think so. I think they're going to be yeah. more, more going down that path. Yeah. And the DNC, you know, they started out on the first two nights with a little bit more 
stuff for the base, right? You get a little bit yep. more of the, the ideology and the agenda. You get Bernie Sanders, right? Um, yep. Get AOC, right? Um, but they began, they pivoted more, more, more towards the, towards the middle, right? As the convention went on. And we'll see if, if the RNC is able to do that. We'll, I mean, so far that there's, it's also, it's also been a very sort of dark, like, you know, we're, we're the only thing that's standing between you and the sort of the democratic dystopia. We'll see if they're able to pivot right. towards a more positive, like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to make America great again. We're going to bring back the economy. We're going to squash COVID and things are going to be great. So, and I think they're going to need to do that. Um, if they're going to use the convention to effectively bring some of the moderates back into the fold. Um, but it's not clear, um, if they're going to take that direction at this point. Right. Yeah, my overall impression of the DNC and then one day of the RNC is that both of them are quite dark events. Both of them were essentially yep. projecting a dystopian present True. or a dystopian future if the, if the other side wins. And so there was yep. not a lot of hope or light in either side. And there was not a lot of policy either. Now, the there's been yeah. a lot of public scorn over the RNC for basically announcing that they would not be producing a... Um, electoral platform this year. And one of the other things that conventions do is they typically ratify the party platform, the, the policies and agenda issues the party really stands for. And sometimes these things are hotly contested. The RNC is not even doing one this year. They're just saying, we support the agenda of the president to make America great again, which is, yep. which is palapal. That doesn't mean anything, right? It just basically means we stand with Trump. Right. Um, right. The, the DNC did produce a, um, a party platform but I'm not sure that these things matter very much because they're not being no. talked about at all. This, like no. I said, this is really a referendum on one person. And Joe Biden yep. knows that. This is not about people loving him. It's about people disliking Trump. And he's, his a relative anonymity at his own convention is, is evidence of that. Yep. And I think they, you know, they, that's right. I mean, they, they made it very little about policy. I didn't watch the whole democratic convention, but I, I watched a lot of the major speakers and it did feel it was framed much more about, you know, here's what we have right now with Donald Trump. Here's why it's bad. Here's how Joe Biden can offer us a kind of better alternative, but it was a lot more emphasis on kind of those first two points. And then sort of like, let's tell you Biden's personal story. He's empathetic and kind and decent and qualified in a way that Trump's not. Um, so you should go with this, but it's, you know, it wasn't exactly an overwhelming, like sort of explanation of like, here's what the Democrats really want to do with the country. It's more like, we can't keep doing what we're doing. So let's do this and we'll, we'll figure out what this is or tell you what this is kind of later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Platforms are weird because, you know, in one sense, they don't matter a whit, right? Um, they're, they, they're not <laughs> binding on anybody. Um, you know, they could be, you know, they're often ignored, right? Um, yep. you know, certain key components of them, but they do give you a sense of where sort of the core party faithful wants to go. Right. Yeah. And so if you yeah. look at the core party faithful of the DNC, I mean, it's, it's the most progressive sort of, um, you know, platform we've seen produced mm -hmm. by the democratic party yet. And, you know, and people like Bernie Sanders have come out and said, Joe Biden's going to be the most, you know, progressive, progressive, um, president that we've had since FDR. Right. Um, right. And Republican platform too, or lack thereof, says something about what the core party faithful in the Republican Party stand for, right? And it's that they yeah. stand for Trump, right? Um, and that they are loyal to Trump. Um, and if you and and it was weird because so the the resolution basically says, hey, we're just you know we're not going to have a real resolution or, or real platform. We're just going to say everyone get on board with the Trump um, policy agenda for the second term. 
which there wasn't an official one. So a few hours later, <laughs> the, the Trump campaign publishes one. Um, and it's interesting, and, and some other people have pointed this out. It's interesting to see what's in it and what's not in it. What's what's not in it is fascinating. There's nothing for social conservatives or fiscal conservatives. Um, there's there's no, I mean, the certain words do not exist. Constitution, <laughs> life, judges, religion, liberty, faith. None of those words exist in the Trump platform. So it's like social conservatism is sort of an afterthought to him. Yep. Um, and there's nothing about, you know, fiscal responsibility um, and, and so forth. So these people are sort of out in the cold. They have no sort of part in sort of the, the Trump GOP. Yeah. I mean, and, and, so, and, and, and so that just kind of shows platforms are useful because they kind of show you where the core of the party is at and where it wants to go. Right. Right. And, and this and this tells you really uh, if Trump is defeated as a as a one term president and there is this sort of reckoning with the Republican Party, there's an avenue open for someone to say, I'm repudiating the, the Republican experiment with populism. I'm repudiating the American the Republican experiment with um, anti-immigration policies or um, flirting with racist agendas. Um, but I strongly stand with small government and strongly stand with fiscal yep. conservatism yep. and I, or even almost sort of like a neo-libertarian path. Those are, those are open pathways to reclaim the soul of the party. There's another mm -hmm. pathway too, which I think is actually more complicated. And that's the evangelical pathway. Um, which is to say, uh, I, I can't, uh, I can't stand up for what who Trump was, but there's something about the soul of America that I feel I, I, I want to fight for. The problem with that is, and I read there's been some interesting work just recently about the um, the subsuming of the of the evangelical agenda by the national populist agenda. And I right. think that might be a, a trickier road to reclaim the party if this is indeed a fracturing. But we need to come back to this. This is this yeah. is a this is another podcast. All right. <laughs> um, does at the end of the day. What kind of effect do the do the conventions have? Do they actually produce a meaningful change in voting behavior with so few people undecided? Is this is this a useful exercise? I mean, I think in well, ordinary times it's more useful because it's it's a chance for you to fire up the party faithful. I mean, the people that are actually there. Um, you get a chance to, to, you know, to hash out some organizational issues. Um, and, you know, it's a visible expression of the kind of, you know, participation in, in democracy that you've had in, in choosing, you know, sort of who's different states support for president and then kind of bringing everybody together behind whoever you, you land on. Um, so I think they still serve a kind of, you know, organizational purpose. Um, I think, this year's, you know, does not do that so much. Um, I think what it maybe still does is it provides a certain opportunity to fire up the base or at least to try to persuade the few persuadable people and to show, you know, like maybe that, that you know, for example, in Joe Biden's case, right, there's a lot of concern about his mental health, right? Is he, is he you know, still, um, you know, honestly, like in a good enough shape, right, to be president, and I think his speech could have been reassuring to people, right, who were concerned about that issue, saying like, yeah. "Oh, it does feel like he's stringing together thoughts in a reasonably coherent manner, um, <laughs> that he has some vision, right?" Yep. Um, okay, I don't want Trump. I do want somebody else. I feel like Joe Biden, you know, is not, you know, in the latter stages of dementia, right? Uh, contrary to some of the news reports, therefore I can go vote for him. So I think on those kind of things, it's it's useful. But on the other hand, I mean, like, 
I don't expect it to swing votes much one way or the other. I think most people went into these two convention weeks knowing how they were going to vote. Um, and nothing that happens in these two weeks is likely to change that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, two things. I mean, it, it's useful. The conventions are useful because they give you general impressions and information mm -hmm. about what the party, each of the parties stands for, right, uh, moving forward. And I think that's a, a useful service. I mean, there's no better place to tune in if you want, like, if you have like two hours of your life to figure out what each party stands for, like go tune in for, you know, a couple hours at each convention, you'll get a pretty good flavor of, of yep. what each party stands for. Um, and yep. that's useful. Um, yeah. But you know, the effects, the effects are so minimal um, and um, they're even more minimal this year because the number of swing voters um, is, is smaller than we've had in a while. Um, right. At best, I think, you know, it's going to be useful for getting the, the, the party faithful, um, the, yep. you know, the, energized and out to vote um yeah. and so in some ways you know even though the rnc so far has not sort of tried to pivot you know gear their convention towards the moderate voter they don't necessarily have to do that um because yeah. not many of them are going to tune in to listen right what they need is they need to make sure that the people who are already more likely to vote for trump actually get out to do that correct one last minor effect that conventions might purpose is a launching pad. Yeah. In, in 2004, Barack Obama made a splash at the Democratic National Convention, and that propelled him to a campaign in 2008. Was there anyone at the Democratic National Convention this year that you thought took a step forward and increased their national, national publicity by speaking at the DNC? No. I guess my confession here is I, I mostly watch known entities for the D DNC, so okay. I didn't get as much of a chance to look at them. To I be fair, people, people who are known entities to you may not be known entities to mostly Americans. Well, but I'm talking about like former <laughs> presidents. Like I watched the, you know, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and Hillary Clinton. Okay. And so, you know, and of course the candidates themselves. Um, my, my take is no. I think I agree with Matt. Uh, I think, you know, so the Democrats did this sort of like rising stars, 17 rising stars or something like that. And I think that it, this, my sense of that was that they spread it too thin and so that nobody got a chance to make an impression because there were too many of them, right? It's that sort of Incredibles line, right? Because when everyone's special, no one is, right? Like, <laughs> that kind of problem. So I don't think they really did a very good job of, of doing that this year. The obvious person who could have really established a brand um, was Kamala Harris, and I was super underwhelmed by her speech. I mean, it was fine. It was serviceable. You know, like if you're just trying to be reassured that she could be president, then it probably did that. But in terms of like lighting a fire, like, yeah, wow, you know, I, I'd go out and fight, fight for her. I can't imagine that it had that effect on many people, right? Like she, it was fine, but it was nothing more than fine. Um, it was yeah. not inspiring. It was certainly not a Barack Obama 2004 kind of moment, right? Um, so I don't think it did that on that side. On the RNC side, I did watch Tim Scott's and Nikki Haley's. And depending on where the Republican Party goes, those were actually very interesting speeches. I mean, Haley's was more overtly pro-Trump, um, but she's certainly comfortable in front of the camera. Um, and somebody you could see, you know, being a, an interesting future candidate. I think that probably didn't hurt her. Um, and then Tim Scott's was actually really good. And I thought that might be, you know, like, again, especially if the Republican Party wants to move in a little bit different direction um, than the Donald Trump direction, you know, if he in fact loses. Um, that speech might come back to help him um, down the road. So I actually thought the RNC's first night was actually in some ways more effective at that than the Democrats were. All right, guys, we have several more days of the RNC to watch, and we'll be doing that. We'll be back in your podcast feed uh, in the near future. 
to discuss both conventions and then to kind of lay out a roadmap for what people can expect through September and October leading into the election itself. I will just say that um, we're also launching our fall classes right now. Mm. And all of us are busy. There's a lot of uncertainty around uh, around college time. So um, we covet your prayers um, as we all get back in the classroom in, in different yep. kinds of ways with lots of new methods and policies and ways of ways of doing that. With all of the apprehensions around, around uh, college classes, guys, what's one thing you're excited to be teaching this fall? I mean, I'm actually pretty excited about all my classes. I get to teach Western Humanities, which is always fun. You're talking about the great questions. I mean, like, who are we? Who is God? What's our relationship? Um, what's what's one thing you read in Western Humanities you're excited to have students read? Uh, I always love teaching um, Augustine's Confessions. I just think it's such a, a fascinating, like, sort of, it's like, it's basically an extended prayer um, where he's thinking about how he came to know um, the love of God and how it transformed his life. And so I just think that's always one of those works that I hope students will appreciate. Um, and then I'm teaching parties and elections. So I'll get to talk about a lot of this stuff and look at it in comparison with Europe and Latin America. And I love intro to comparative. Um, you just get a chance to sort of give students a sense of how other countries govern themselves. So that's, I was working on quizzes for that even today. And he oh, loves nice. everything about teaching. He really does. I do enjoy Like I, I will say that my fall lineup when I teach Western Humanity one and intro to comparative is always kind of a it's a good semester. How about you, Matt? Well, um, so I get to teach modern political thought, which is always always fun um, because you get to introduce some some pretty challenging topics to students and you know see them sort of wrestle with this shift um, towards modernity and see what that looks like in politics. So it's it's hard, but it's good. And of course, um, you know, whenever you get to teach um, American politics courses in the midst of a presidential election, you know, there's just <laughs> students are, are extra enthused and interested right. in paying attention to the news. Um, and that allows us to get more traction in the classroom. So that's that's always fun. Cool. Yes. What's one text from modern that you are looking forward to reading with your students? Oh, man, so many, so many good ones. I mean, I'm a sucker for um, for John Locke, but one of the ones I like to do is Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky uh, to sort of exhibit sort of this the shift in um, from sort of classical ways of thinking about humans to sort of modern problems. Um, and it's a nice break from the, the dry, dusty tomes that we read and read something that's sort of more um, guttural. It's really dark, but it's really good. <laughs> All right, and uh, Sam is gesticulating wildly during this conversation. So Sam, uh, what, are you, what are you teaching this fall? I'm just excited to be teaching, period. Um, I'm, teaching, <laughs> yeah. I'm teaching CWC, but I'm also going to be working with um, the uh, humanities team. We have uh, a whole new season of Bookish at Bethel coming out uh, starting, I think, next week. So uh, we're going to be dropping episodes every Monday nice. on that. So nice. Andy, Andy talked about Augustine's Confessions. That's one of my favorite books, period. We have two great episodes from last year if you want to go nice. back and listen to Eric Leafblad talk about confessions, or I did an episode of, uh, about confessions of that as well. So uh, really good stuff coming. Cool. Sam, what's one thing in CBC that you just can't wait for students to read? Uh, it's Plato and Aristotle. It's because yeah. for most of the students who take the, that course, they are, they've never had a philosophy course before and right. we hit them in week two with Plato and Aristotle. And it's, oh, and, yeah. uh, you just sort of begin to see their minds kind of expand on that. And then you keep right. coming back to it over like and over. Coming out of a cave, for example. 
Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Plato's Republic is my other obvious choice for Western humanities too. I mean, it's just it's so much fun to teach that. Yeah. It's good stuff. How about you, Chris? Well, I've I'm I'm going to have a good semester too. I'm really hoping we can teach face to face for as long as possible because I'm teaching senior sem this fall, and I always pick a little sub theme for senior sem. And my little sub theme for senior sem this year is uh, the rise of populism, and so I'm we're we'll reading yep. a couple texts about that. Uh, we're going to read Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized, and um, Adam Przorsky's, I think I'm saying it right, isn't it Przorsky? Przorsky, yeah. Um, called Crises of Democracy. So I'm mm -hmm. interested in looking at the rise of populism and talking about that with students, students who are living through this and maybe voting for their first presidential election and yep. thinking about um, what the role of populism plays in those vote choices. So nice. that's something I'm really excited about. Oh man, I want to take the class actually. It sounds great. Sounds fun. I would let you hang out, but I literally can't let anyone else in the room. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, social distancing, man. I had a student, I had a, I had a high school student email me today and be like, hey, can I come sit in your classes? Like just no. spot it out. And I'm like, no, sorry, you can't. <laughs> you have to talk no. I literally can't let another soul no. into this room. Um, but yeah. once we all go on Zoom, then we can sit in on your anyone can classes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, some, exactly. And some people will Zoom bomb it. All right, we gotta oh, go. Dear. Let's Zoom. Let Let's all agree to Zoom bomb Doctor Moore's classes sometime this fall. Ooh. That would be in. I'm, yeah, I'm because I'm definitely looking for extra things to do this fall. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for the great conversation. Uh, you can always get a hold of us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, please, if you want to email the channel, you can email us at channel3900 at gmail.com. And please subscribe to the channel, too. As Sam said, we've got Books to Bethel coming out. We've got a bunch of other cool things coming down the channel. We're gearing back up for the fall here, guys. There's lots more in the feed coming your way. Thanks for listening to us. Until we talk to you next time, go Royals. Go Royals.